listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylit, a Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and asking that all customers wear masks inside the store regardless of vaccination status. We also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, www.skylightbooks.com. You can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. It's my pleasure to be joined by Jan Beatty and Elena Byrne today to discuss Jan's new book, American Bastard. Jan Beatty's sixth book, The Body Wars, was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Books include Jackknife, New and Collected Poems, named by Sandra Cisneros on LitHub as her favorite book of 2019. Awards include the Agnes Lynch Start Poetry Prize, Discovery slash The Nation Prize finalist, Pablo Neruda, Neruda Prize for Poetry, $10,000 Artist Grant from the Pittsburgh Foundation, and a $15,000 Creative Achievement Award in Literature from the Heinz Foundation. She directs creative writing in the Mad Women in the Attic workshops at Carlo University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Former 12-year regional director of the Poetry Society of America, Elena Karina Byrne is a freelance editor, 25-year poetry consultant, and moderator for the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, poetry programs curator for the Craft Contemporary Museum, and literary programs director for the Historic Ruskin Art Club. How are you two doing today? Wonderful. We're doing great. Thank you so much for having us. And I'm so excited to be here with Elena Karina Byrne. It's been a while. So... It's truly our pleasure to have you guys today. And uh, Jan, you have something picked out to read from your new book? Yeah, um, I'm going to start with something from American Bastard. And it's it's a memoir. I mean, I'm, I usually am a poet, but this is the first thing I've written uh, in prose. And um, I was born in a place called Rosalia Asylum and Maternity Hospital in the Hill District of Pittsburgh and uh, didn't find out my real name till I was 32 years old. Uh, they used to call it a home for unwed mothers. Um, and uh, then it became an orphanage. I was there the first year of my life, as far as I know. So um, the dedication for the book is uh, as follows. Uh, this is for the lost ones who never knew where they came from. This is against the ones who pretended the loss never happened. So this uh, begins, the first section is called Red Dress, and it starts with uh, 
a quote by Wanda Coleman, who I love and who I was lucky enough to um, to be with in LA that one year for the book book festival out there, and uh, uh, really miss her. So this is Wanda Coleman. I stole it back because it was mine from the get-go. All shook up, a rumble mama burped, and there I was. Take these rhythms as evidence, my splendid rock and roll. <laughs> so this goes back to the orphanage. Uh, after the tearing and rolling. After the tearing and rolling, you are an infant somewhere in a crib, in a room full of cribs. Someone is taking care of you. You don't know who. Who is the person who picks you up? Is it a woman? Is it a nun? There's no story in sight, no same loving face, blood of my blood face. The smells, the feel of the rolling and tearing are gone, gone where? No face, who has your face? No way of knowing who is who? What hands are these? Why are they different every time? There is no bonding taking place. The story is fractured here and forever after. Then strangers come to gaze at you, touch you, wonder about you. They decide to pluck you out of there and make you theirs. These strangers will take your name away and hide it. The government will cooperate. It will take months and months for this baby trade to be completed, a baby in exchange for money. Meanwhile, someone is feeding you. Is it a kind person? What do they smell like? You will never know these hands again. You will be taken to a strange place. People will start calling you the lucky one, the chosen baby. No one sees that your story is gone, that you are being handed off like a football. From now on, everyone will pretend that your first story never existed. They will act and want you to act as if you are one of them. Their blood, their faces, their world. You know that to survive, you will have to do this. You will have to pass. But your new mother has dark hair and brown eyes. Your father has dark hair. Their noses are not like yours. Your white blonde hair shines sickly like the odd light in a bad painting. Later, you look at your cousins. They have beautiful long eyelashes, all of them the same. You value how others resemble others. You long for it. In first grade, you refuse to make a family tree. Your parents and teachers suggest you make one based on your new family. You refuse. And uh, I'll just read one more piece, a uh, very short piece. The, um, it took me many years to, um, to find my birth mother. And then when I uh, located her, she didn't want to meet me through social services. But I got a letter from her. This is called the letter, the crucifix. I got a call from Catholic social services my birth mother didn't want to see me. She had written a letter that I could come and pick up. The letter was written on horrible yellow stationery with some sweet blue flowers on the border. When I opened it, a gold crucifix on a chain fell out. 
You've got to be kidding me, I thought. This is her idea of a response. As I read the letter, I was shaking with the excitement of at last having some contact and with the anger of her not meeting me. She's talking about her parish priest and the advice he gave her to give up her child for adoption, how he thought it was best. Her priest, really? How does a guy who's never given birth, what business is it of his? As I'm reading, I'm writing a letter in my head. Dear birth mother, why are you listening to him? Why won't you own it? Say what you want, say what you feel. The crucifix was a cheap shot. Think about it. You're sending me a thing, an image of a dead guy on a cross, another man. What is it that you want? Where's your courage? I deserve more. I put the crucifix back in the envelope. I needed a real body, not a dead one. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for a second and uh, talk to Elena about things. Hi, Jan, wonderful. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wonderful and, and uh, difficult. Um, wonderful in the way that we're at a crossroads time, obviously, although I'm wondering if ever historically we've not been in a crossroads time when um, human beings feel displaced, disconnected, unwelcomed, all of those things that are, are part of this loss that you're experiencing. And original loss, like we know so well, is something that alters perception. It creates a sense of alienation and it upends how we see ourselves, revising our existence and therefore our concept of time. Um, which suddenly came to mind was, I wrote this uh, essay many years ago that was published in 2016 that borrows um, the title's quote from Charles Simic. It's called An Orphan of Silence. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a lot of what Jan is talking about in this book. Um, you know, the type of silence that exists um, in families, um, the type of silence that exists socially and politically. And um, his, his definition was that poetry is an orphan of silence, words never quite equal the experience behind them. But I imagine here, as in your book, too, um, the adopted parents never quite equal the experience of the real thing. And the sense of self that we carry around in ourselves, whether it's um, an other self that's somehow been created through this absence, um, I'm thinking that too is, uh, you know, born out of a kind of silence and a kind of uh, deliberate silence that that is really so much a part of the culture of who we are, you know, looking away, turning a blind eye, all, all of those things are interrelated in this. And I'll bring up one more thing because I think you'll appreciate this. There's a, a wonderful um, artist, sculptor, from England, her name is Rachel Whiterreed. And what she does, one of the, the things that I love that she's done in her work is she's cast negative space. And how she describes that it's the unforeseeable thing, traces left by what 
it once contained. So she'll cast a negative space under a table or the inside of a box or a whole room. And, and again, I'm thinking about this in relationship to what you are talking about and how that feeling of never really belonging, that feeling of being um, you know, taken, a stranger in another's life, a stranger's life, and how that that is a kind of very visible presence of absence and and that you know there's so much of this is this is interrelated in your work but anyway I, I'm just thinking about where you started from in this process and if and if it was that that emotional precipice or it was something else that brought you to writing this memoir yeah well you know I think I should have talked to you before I wrote the book because <laughs> they were really great things and I haven't read the Charles Simic um, you know, essay, and I will, but um, thank you. Um, yeah, this this book, um, I, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but I, I feel like I've been trying to write it my whole life. I mean, I, I, was, I was always looking for a book that was saying what's in this book, and I could never find it. And I, I was reading every book on adoption I could find, and uh, and I would usually throw them across the room, but because there was all, in my experience, there was always this whitewashing that was happening. You know, oh. talk about the healing, make it nice, make make it sweet, and it's just not. You know, and and I so this is more um, as I see it, the dark side of adoption, the you know real side of adoption, and you know, um, so I sort of wrote the book that I needed. Uh, but I never thought I could uh, write it. Um, it took took many years to do it. Uh, it like in 2020, I published uh, a um, a piece of this book. So that's when it started um, in um, creative nonfiction. And I had a, a book proposal from back then, but I didn't send it out. I, I ran into a lot of trouble. Um, personally with psychically with how to handle the the loss of it and every time I would try to write about it I would get um, off balance I would get have trouble uh, personally and so I had to I had to mature I had to go to therapy which I was already in but I had to uh, work on it in therapy and mature as a person but also as a writer because I'm like how, I don't know how to do this I don't know how to how to do this at all. And uh, so what I did was I just kept journal after journal after journal and just wrote everything because I was hoping one day that I could use it. And, um, and what finally happened was I, um, and it sounds really, sounds kind of strange, but I had, when I was uh, growing up, one of my aunts, I had a, a cool aunt, you know, from my adoptive family. And she gave me this huge dictionary. I'm telling you, it was like uh, 12, 12 inches high and it it was the best gift and it had a red leather uh it was a red leather on it and it, it had rivets in it it was the coolest dictionary and I kept it in my clothes closet because I was like a little freak uh uh scientist kid I was just reading everything and memorizing things and making charts because I I I was alone a lot a lot of the time I didn't realize how lonely I was so I wrote this book I mean, growing up, you know, and so I, that dictionary was so important to me and I was reading encyclopedias 
and making charts of the history of cities and stuff and different places. And um, so anyway, when it came time to write this book, when I, I was going to this residency in the West in um, uh, Brush Creek Ranch in Wyoming. And I just took this topographical dictionary with me um, of the West. And I had no idea I was gonna use it in the book, but I, I, I needed, the West sort of became a home to me. I didn't realize for many years that my birth father was from Manitoba, um, right. from Winnipeg, and he was Canadian, but I just kept going west and west and west. And so with this dictionary, I just started with epigraphs from this topographical dictionary because it seemed to ground me in some kind of place. And that ended up being like a jumpstart place for the sections of the book. It just became an intuitive thing that I didn't plan at all because I was just trying to get through it, you know? Yeah, well, that that's a very, I think that's a very important point that um, even if the loss or the that gap between, which you talk about a lot in the book, the gap between the reality and the mythology, um, that, that even so that we, because there's something physiological, you know, whether we, we like it or not, we think we can overcome things intellectually or whatever it is, but there is definitely something physiological about our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of ourselves in the world. And also obviously our, the third part, our understanding of the world. And so I love this idea of taking the topographical charting of where you needed to go without, you know, to, in order to articulate it. And um, it, it's beautiful. I mean, it's an elegy for the self, which I think in you could say it is very much what poetry is about. Um, and it's also, you know, brings together that, that idea that longing and loss are inseparable bel um, bedfellows is something I've always proposed. And, you know, I also, you know, Tolstoy, I came across this quote where, or this, um, it was a re recapping of Tolstoy talking about our opportunity to change myth by which one lives. So whether you're adopted or whether you have presented a self to the world that doesn't, suddenly doesn't feel real, you know, feels false or feels like not authentic. These are the, this is, this is the opportunity that we have as artists to address that, and I and you've done you've done it so thoroughly and so beautifully, um, with a head-on sort of reclaiming and unflinching look at what was before you, and I think it's very brave in that way. And again, it's brave because the topic extends to something further than than being adopted. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I. Um, well, when I was writing it, I. Um, you know, I was um, with the actual writing. I, um, I I had about nine versions of it, and uh, initially there was a little more poetry in it. And I know I needed to get the poetry out of there. You know, I I needed to to, to make it primarily nonfiction. There's there's still some pages of poetry in there. Yeah, know? including one of my favorites, which is my mother was a dress. Yeah. And, you know, that idea that, that 
whether it's memoir or film, I mean, these are all visual mediums. And so, you know, to, and especially when we take something ordinary, like a dress, a blue dress, and it, and it becomes something extraordinary, you know, once placed in the hands of the writer. And I appreciate that so much and, and how it morphs as well into something else, you know, and, and I think that we, we adopt and adapt things into our bodies. We, you know, our bodies are these great psychological digestive systems, right? It, just, it feels like that. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in a 12-step program, Al-Anon, and when they talk a lot about survival and being able to separate ourselves. So it's so interesting because it's that original separation that creates the spiritual loss. And, you know, it's about the ontology of loss. And so we're, if, we're, if we're, in order to, to separate ourselves from ourselves and stand back and look at something, that also means that we have to, to be able to get, get, in, get in there and be messy as well, I think. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you have to be willing to, to say anything and everything. And, and that may not end up in the book uh, or end up in the story, whatever story you're writing, but I think you have to just let it, let it go. And that's, that's the frightening part. And, you know, I, I'm just about to, to embark on some readings of the book. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm nervous about it because I'm used to reading poetry where I can say, well, that's really not about me. That's the speaker of the poem, you know, that, but this is, there's no escape here. And uh, with nonfiction, Right, right. And, and yet I feel that poetry is moving back into much more of a nonfictional um, territory. I feel, I feel that we're, we're hungry for that because of the, the, let's say, the collective loss that we're feeling in our society and in our culture. So, so I would think that this will be embraced uh, um, as another sort of empowered form speaking to what it is that we need to do, which is to, to face, you know, I, I've used this quote so often, but, and, and not to make it a slippery road, but Kafka said, the truth is alive and therefore having, has a lively changing face. And I've also quoted the Harold Pinter quote, which he says, it's the past, and this, you know, you talk about being strangers and strangers taking you into a new strange life, and babies are even aware of that, but the past is a foreign country in which we are all strangers, and, and I think, my God, you know, that's why we want to revisit our backgrounds and things that happened to us and why we revisit these things and why vicariously we revisit these things in films and in art. And, you know, it is an inexhaustible subject matter. So um, I think it holds the power of poetry that poetry contains. Um, when I read this, I, I, I was completely engaged. I never wanted to put it down. So, so I think I think our our listeners will will find that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, there, there's a part in the book where, um, you know, when I do meet my birth mother for the first time, and you know, I have um, 
a short time in a closed room with her at Catholic Social Services. And at the time I was a waitress uh, and oh, yeah. it was a while ago. So I was wearing dresses. And so I had two dresses, a red one and a blue one. I wore the red one and she had the blue dress on. And that was, that was kind of shocking. And I mean, it wasn't a, a common dress, you know, it was, it was a cotton dress, V-neck with, but it had a thin tan string belt. I mean, it was the same dress. That would have been really wow. terrifying if I wore the blue dress, but it was terrifying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it really struck me. And, um, you know, people use the words, um, coincidence it's not a co my son says it's my my son who who uh is you know wants to be very spiritually connected to the whole world says it's synchronicity so that it means that we're going in the right direction that we need to be going in when we start to see coincidences i don't know whether that's true but as you as you point out you know maybe there's something again physiological physical the, genetic that makes that draws us you know there's so much we don't know right about the brain and something that draws us toward these objects or these these likes and dislikes it's, it's fascinating yeah i mean there was there's a lot of that in the book as you know but um for you know when growing up i was you know an athlete and i would you know would spend you know, hours and hours smashing, you know, softballs into the back of the house, breaking windows. And I was on, you know, the softball team, the volleyball team, et cetera. I majored in phys ed and <laughs> I started anyway, majoring in phys ed in college. And it wasn't until I found out my birth father was a hockey player who won three Stanley Cups. I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, because I've always been brutally competitive with sports. And, and my adoptive family is like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know, get out of my way. You know, it's like, <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's a really good example. Um, it's an amazing story. It's, it's, uh, it's very dimensional in it. And I love also the time periods in which you, you know, the time periods that you address because they're so distinctive and, and yet they're so universal. You know, everything about this is universal. And yet we could go back to the 50s. We could say, oh, well, women were treated this way and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so that's another reason that this is, is uh, you know, it's very timely. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, I mean, to me, it feels dangerous as in, um, you know, you're not... Culturally, this story is not told in this way. You're not supposed to say anything negative about any mother anywhere. You know, right. an, an adoptive mother, you know, and and the the cultural story here is supposed to be you're the chosen baby, you're the lucky one, you're supposed to be so grateful, et cetera, et cetera. And so to write this book, you know, is a dangerous thing. And, you know, I expect some blowback on it, um, but I'm not, you know, all I'm asking for, I am asking for something. I'm asking for people to consider a different view of it, a different yeah. view of adoption. You know, it's not this beautiful thing. And for some people it may be, but let's, let's not forget 
that all adoptees lost their names, lost their medical history, you know, even if they were eventually told, you know, yeah. that stuff, you know, right. uh, lost their connections, lost their primary connections at the beginning. And then they're supposed to be happy to have someone else's name. They're supposed to be grateful. I mean, that currency of gratitude is the price that's paid. And that's a heavy price. Yeah, understandably. But I think um, I think there's still, I at least translated a feeling of gratitude and warmth that came from, and, and the way the book comes full circle at the end, yeah. you will be given a body. You, yeah. you know, you're giving something back to yourself. And I, th I think that's marvelous. You know, uh, I'll use... Um, uh, a phrase from poet Megan Fernandez, she, she talks about the violence of insight. And I think that, that, you know, again, you know, we're, as a society, we're, and particularly in American society, you know, that we're, we're meant to be positive and, and everybody, you know, is supposed to have, uh, you know, there's some sort of, inherent democratic ability for anybody to blah 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 fill in the blank and um it's in order to get there it's it's of course it's not true but in order to get there it means facing the difficult the difficulties that we've that make us who we are right um, right and 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 again you know as i said in the beginning i love that there's there's an intuitive reasoning that is also then creates evidentiary, you know, examples of what we need to know and see and, you know, putting the building blocks together. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrific. I could, I could see this being put in, made into a movie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really could too. I can, I can see it. I mean, I could feel it you know, all that intuitive stuff. And uh, I, I could definitely see it. I was, um, I was actually involved in this, uh, this film project at the University of Pittsburgh and, uh, and they, chose, um, they chose American Bastard as one of four um, projects to, uh, to show to agents, to Hollywood agents, you know? Wow. Yeah, so people were interested in it and uh, I mean, it's not being made into a movie right now, but I, I could, I'm glad that you feel that way, you know? Absolutely. Um, now that I'm writing screenplays, I thought, oh boy, I could, you know, get my teeth into this. <laughs> Go for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's marvelous. It's marvelous. Um, so anything else that you would like to say to us that like in terms of, um, I mean, obviously, too, I think it's important for writers to um, address that they can, you know, about the, the transitioning between um, genres, which, yeah. you know, I think that they're interrelated. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, I really didn't know if I could do that. And when I, um, when I had a manuscript, I asked for help, you know, I showed it to people who I trusted. And, and, you know, really at the beginning, I said, look, just tell me, really tell me if this is terrible. You know, it's like, and they're like, no, no, it's good. But I, I got some help 
with editing. I got some comments and then I asked some people who had um, editors if, if they would uh, think of giving me a referral. And I got, so I got the book in the hands of some editors and it was kind of interesting because uh, they all said the same thing. There were four or five editors who were, um, you know, one with, um, you know, Scribner's, I mean, some big places. And um, they said that was harrowing, it was powerful, but would I make it chronological? Oh dear. <laughs> Everybody wanted it to be chronological. And I said, oh, I said, I can't because for, for one thing, I, I can't remember a lot of my childhood. Um, you know, I have these pieces, but because of that, I did go back and I, I, I revised and revised and I made it, I, I made pieces of it chronological as, as much as I could. You know, I tried to give it a, a little more of a spine of sense, you know, because as a poet, you know, I sort of like to jump around all over the place and, and I, and I thought, you know, okay, maybe I need to have a little more direction here. So I did that. I had nine versions of it over time and I kept sending it out, sending it out and with, without any luck. And then uh, I was giving up. I sent it out for four years. And uh, I, I mean, this sounds crazy, but so I went to my astrologer and <laughs> my, I, she said, how's what's going on with the memoir? I said, it's dead. It's not happening. And she said, she said, no, look right here in your chart. Look right there. There it is. She said, send that, send that thing out. I said, really? She said, yes. And that's the, I'm telling you, it's the only reason I sent it out again. I was, I had given up. And then I got it taken very shortly after. <laughs> like, well, and, and, and as a final advice to our listeners too, <laughs> hey, um, you know, you don't have to have a uh, an astrologer or you, you can create your own astrology chart and just <laughs> perseverance is very important and uh, as you know you know from being an athlete too so <laughs> well it's so great to talk to you Elena. oh lovely yeah lovely and I can't wait to, we could have a whole other conversation but I know that our time is up yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, today's guests were Jan Beatty and Elena Karina Byrne, and they were discussing Jan's new book, American Bastard. You can order your copy of the book or any of the others mentioned on today's podcast at skylightbooks.com. Swing by and pick them up at the store. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.